Welcome to False Bottom Girls, a podcast about the wonderful yet sometimes confusing world of beer and brewing. Hi, I'm Rachel Hudson, owner of Pilot Brewing and an Advanced Cicerone. Hi, I'm Jen Blair, sensory expert, home brewer, and Advanced Cicerone. Rachel, hello. Hello. Welcome to our podcast. Welcome. Pop quiz. What is your favorite Esther? Oh, which Esther do you like best? Oh, oh man, I don't know. I don't know. I've never really thought about it. I haven't thought about uh, it either. And I was thinking about it earlier that I was going to ask you. Uh, just the one that makes my beer taste the best. You know, I don't want to have too high a level of either of them. Uh, not isolamyl acetate. I could tell you that. Okay. Not hethyl exonate. Um, Wait, <laughs> ethyl hexanoate? Yeah. Okay. That's what I said. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go, I guess I'm going to go with ethyl acetate. It's the most common what? ester in beer by weight. So why not? Okay. I don't I, know. I mean, I can't, I'm relatively blind to ethyl acetate. Yeah. Well, you know, at low levels, we want low levels of ethyl acetate. Right. We don't want high levels of ethyl acetate. Right. If I'm drinking spiked beer, then I really like oh ethyl. ethyl too. See, I like ethyl hexanoate. Mm, ethyl butyrate is okay, um, but I think I have to like shout out the real MVP, which is isoamyl acetate, which is not my personal favorite tasting ester, but oh. I think it's the easiest one to teach. To, to teach. <laughs> well, we have different. Um, reasons, but right. I like it. Okay. Yes. So what is an ester? Tell me about this. So maybe we should just tell everyone what our episode's about actually. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome everyone. <laughs> Wait, what? Episode. This is false bottom girls, just in case you didn't know. And we're here <laughs> to talk about, you You think they know? I, I feel like, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. They didn't just like roll, crawl, like come across our episode playing on a radio station or anything. <laughs> radio. Yeah. <laughs> on a radio that's how old i am that's how old i am <laughs> yes today we are talking about esters and also about phenols and esters are i don't know how to start this um they're, uh, they're the largest group of flavor compounds in alcoholic beverages that's true and one of the things that, so I remember learning this during CBC online, and I think I've referenced this before, of somebody talking about fermentation and how yeast has evolved to trick humankind into feeding it to keep it alive. And like, kind of like yeast is like our like overlord, uh, because it's kind of what we do, right? I know, and I know. with esters these are made by like rachel said made mostly by yeast there's a couple of like hop varieties where you could get some ethyl butyrate but esters are mostly going to be made by yeast through either well they're going to be made through prolifer proliferation whereas phenols are made by detoxification but esters are commonly found in nature from flowers or fruit and the theory behind esters in beer and brewing yeast is that yeast has learned to mimic other flavors so organisms will move them around and that's that's why you know like ethyl butyrate smells like pineapple is because that's also a compound in pineapple 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and like strawberries as well. So all of these esters are found in different places in nature. So that's why when we, we when we are talking about things like esters and we say it smells like, that's because it is that. It's that mm-hmm. ester that we are smelling that shows up in nature. And before I forget, Rachel, do you have this book, Nosedive by Harold no. Meany? No. I fucking love this book. So the book I'm talking about is Nose Guide or Nose Dive, a field guide to the world's smells. And it's by the same gentleman who wrote um, on food and cooking, which if you were like, I think it, it, it might be a resource for advanced. I know it definitely is for master. Um, but this book is a few, few years old and it really is a field guide where like when I first got it, I sat down and kind of tried to read it. And that may be something that I will revisit at a different time. Yeah. Um, but it's more, more of like a reference. That's kind of like the way food of on food and cooking is. Yes. Right. Yes. That red book, exactly. the red yep. book. Yeah, yeah. I tried to sit down and read that book. It was like, Oh my God, I cannot. Right. <laughs> right. So nose dive is a really great reference. And like, as I've been studying for master and you know you learn kind of quickly that your especially with some of the compounds that are tested on advanced and on master like your research gets a little circular with some compounds pretty quickly because there's just not a ton of information out there or they're formed one way and that way can be described in one sentence Uh, but i like the nose dive book because when i feel like i'm not getting like enough information about these compounds, then I'll check this to see if there's anything else in there or anything that kind of helps me understand more about the compound. So this is not an ester or a phenol, but indole is something Mm -hmm. that, you know, reading through it, I was like, I'm still not like, I'm just, I keep feeling like I'm getting cliff notes versions of what indole is. And I don't feel like I understand it. And in nosedive, he has like a whole chapter about like, you know, kind of bodily smells and how these kind of like fecal putrid smells are part of so many fragrances and scents that we like. Um, So I won't turn this into a book report on nosedive, but this is an extremely helpful book. And one of the other things that I really like about it when we're talking about esters specifically, let me find, is that I'm showing this to Rachel, obviously you all can't (laughs) see it, Um, but there will be like tables of like hey here's this this one is um some smells some smells of stale human urine uh, oh God. but it will give you like here's the component smell here are the molecules and here are the sources interesting and it does that throughout the book for all sorts of esters and um specifically i'm referencing this in the context of esters but it does like fatty acids and all of this stuff so it's a really really good explanation of all of those and shows you also does a good job of breaking down when we're talking about esterification or esterification uh the word that i'm never quite sure i'm finished saying (laughs) uh it will tell you when we're talking about esters the ester is a naming convention has a naming convention right so the first name is whatever alcohol it is. And the second name is whatever acid it is. So you have ethyl butyrate, that's ethanol and butyric acid. And those come together through esterification to form ethyl butyrate. Um, So this book does a really good job too of kind of walking through, like these are the different higher alcohols and 
how they can combine with these different smells that you can have, you know, ethyl isobutyrate or like, I don't know, menthobutylate. I don't know if that's one that exists or not, but it's just a really cool book that gives you knowledge about a lot of these esters outside of what you're going to get in the, just like the beer literature mm -hmm. and what's out there. Exactly. So thank you for coming to my presentation on <laughs> Nose Dive, A Field Guide to the World's Smells. I loved it. Hey, loved thanks. It. You're welcome. But so, yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, so that's a good intro to esters. Like we're talking about esters in the form of beer fermentation or fruity flavors coming from yeast fermentation, right? This is what's happening in the fermentation Um metabolic pathways sorry are you okay oh, yeah my phone <laughs> rang oh <laughs> says scam likely ah yes i see yeah and and within fermentation different yeast strains will produce different fusel alcohols based on its needs and genetics and different more fusels will mean more potential esters so when we're talking about fusels that's the alcohol that's going to be your ethanol or your um, isoamyl, that's going to be your, your, your fusel, yeah. right, um, your fusel alcohol. Um, and yeah, so the, what, what is happening within the yeast during fermentation that's creating this is this esterification process, which is also um, kind of like a, it's also a detoxification process where this esterification is allowing the yeast to break these fusel alcohols. So the ethanol, um, the isoamyl, um, those fusel alcohols are being broken down into esters. And that's because that the fusel alcohols are not are not good for yeast. So yeast wants to get rid of it exactly. and break it down into something that it can use. Um, so- And then we kind of control that as brewers. Right. Through different right. parameters. Right. So what are some of the ways that people can control ester production? Yeah. So I think the three main ones, you know, that we talk about are yeast string and the characteristics of yeast string of that, which, which type of yeast you are using. Um, it's very important to determine the type of beer that you want, right? Before you pick the yeast and that, that is the yeast is going to determine the levels of ester. So you aren't necessarily going to make a brown ale, with a yeast string that is going to produce isoamyl acetate that wouldn't isoamyl acetate, which we'll talk about more, but that's the ester that gives wheat beer or German wheat beer is banana component. Um, so that it wouldn't make sense. So mm -hmm. it's very important to pick the right yeast. Um, they have distinctive to characteristics. Ale strings are more likely to produce esters um, due to the higher levels of temperatures. Like, um, we've said before, yeast is just trying to stay alive. It would love to be the warmest temperature you would allow it to be. Uh, the higher the temperature, the more esters it can create. Also, the more unpleasant flavors, too, if you get too high a temperature, especially if you're using, like, a lager strain that can't handle that. Um, so it's really important, you know, not just the type of yeast strain, but also the state of the yeast can also influence mm -hmm. ester protection. Is this a you know, a pitch that you bought fresh from the yeast store? Is it a third generation harvest? All those things, you know, the health of your yeast is going to determine how that ester, ester production 
um, what, what happens with that. And that can be really hard to control when you are brewing, you know, at a big professional brewing, brewing the same beer over and over and reusing the yeast. You have to do different parameters with, you know, um, maybe in this bringing us to our next factor that's influenced is, you know, the wort composition. How high are the direct uh, dissolved oxygen levels going to be that on the wort going in? Um, the high levels of DO will tend to inhibit ester formation. Um, so maybe if you are using a second or third generation yeast strain, you kind of under aerate it a tad to get those esters that if you, if your beer normally has esters, if you're trying to create that, um, high sugar concentrations increase ester level, more sugar there is, the more the yeast can eat up and create, um, higher alcohols, which, you know, as the fused alcohols, the yeast doesn't like, try to break them down into more esters. Um, and there's different levels of your, your nutrients and vitamins that are also in your wort, your, your levels of fan, which is your free amino nitrogen, your nitrogen level, your zinc level, um, a high, uh, the high levels of those can tend to increase ester formation. Um, your troop, how much troop is being carried over, uh, more troop might lower the ferment ester level. So this is all really, you know, on a homebrew level, probably pretty hard to control. I would imagine your work composition, not in all aspects, but maybe your level of direct dissolved oxygen, you know, if, if one to know how to control it, you have to know what it is. <laughs> you have right. to be able to test it. So, I mean, there's definitely equipment, you know, restraints and stuff, but, you know, on a nanobrewery or microbrewery level, they typically do have the tools to check your, your level of DO. So there are ways that you can control these, um, there's more ways to control, I would say, the bigger the brewery, the more equipment you have, the more resources. And then lastly, like fermentation conditions, the shape of the vessel. Tall, narrow fermenters that tend to produce low, lower levels of esters than like a shallow, open ferment vessel. Um, I know there's a brewery down the street from us that has short little uh, fermenters that are kind of like almost cubed looking, and they're for their saisons to oh, okay. increase that ester that's free range brewery mm -hmm. down the road to increase that ester production. So um, typically the, uh, the taller, the vessel, the more narrow, the fermenter, like you would see at a really, really big brewery, the combination of that high hydrostatic pressure and the high CO2 levels and the taller vessels can uh, produce lower levels of esters. So, and typically I would imagine on a homebrew level, you wouldn't really have too many of those concerns. You won't. Uh, a carboy will produce less esters. Yeah. Uh, for this, for similar-ish reasons. Yeah. Um, just on a lower scale, a yeast starter will produce more esters. True. Um, you are correct about like the oxygen. I, I mean, I would hazard to guess that most homebrewers probably don't oxygenate their wort as much as they should, particularly if you're shaking it. If that's mm -hmm. how you're aerating it, which is what. I do mostly um, right now because I'm out of my oxygen. <laughs> when we took the the White Labs class um, several years ago, that's one of the things they talked about was the aeration and how long, if you're a home brewer and you're splashing it to aerate it, how long you need to do that for to even start to get up to like the bare minimum of what you need. And yeah, it's like 30 lot. minutes. <laughs> and that's that's if you're doing it 
like consistently, you know, it's and in a way that's measurable. So I, mean, I, I don't know, shit ferments. So right, right, and this, <laughs> and we've talked about this before, especially on a homebrew scale, that you're going to make perfectly fine beer, and if you're shaking your vessel, like yeah, like I've won awards for beer that I've shaken, and maybe it would have been first place if I had more do in it. I I don't know. Um, but we're at the, with something like this, with oxygenating your wort on a homebrew scale, we're talking about like, you're at the point where you're like perfecting your recipe yeah, and you're making you, incremental changes. Yeah. And you can get like, like you said, your stone, like little stone that you kind of, I've only seen one, but you kind of like stick it down, has mm -hmm. like a little hose and stick it down, just kind of aerate it for whatever time. Yeah. Probably pretty cheaply, I would imagine. Yeah. It's not, it's not expensive at all. That's my preferred way just because it's you can measure a little bit yeah. more what, what you're putting in and you can ensure that you're getting yeah, closer to what you probably need. Um, but we're not talking about dissolved oxygen, but nope. it, is, it, it is important for ester formation or for ester non-formation if mm -hmm. that's not what you're going for. And you have to consider all these factors as a whole too, right? You can't just like really do one and and call it a day because what you're doing might inhibit something else that you want to happen. So like, you just kind of have to consider, you know, what, what, what am I brewing and what type of yeast is it and how healthy is the yeast? Right. Yeah. Kind and like you said, questions. what, what does my, what do I want my finished profile yeah. to look like? And that's something with, if you're just going through a manufacturer like White Labs or Omega and you're, let's say I'm, I'm brewing a, I'm trying to think of one where I've done this, um, I'm brewing like a British brown ale. And so I have all of these options for British ale yeast of what I want that fermentation profile to be like to add to the beer. Then that's, you know, I can go in and read through like, okay, this one's going to have like a higher esters and that's, that's the profile I'm leaning towards. So I will be more likely to choose this one or this one um, ferments mm -hmm. very, and it, you know how I feel about the word clean in terms of describing beer, but it ferments fairly clean with no, with low esters and phenols. Maybe yeah. that's what I want. And yeah. so that yeast strain is going to make a big difference in, you know, you can have five different English ale yeast strains that are going to give you five different profiles in the finished beer. Yeah, for sure. Well, um, well, let's just talk about kind of like, we got like four main esters here. Um, we kind of talked a little bit about them, but just real quick, ethyl acetate is uh, the most common ester in beer by weight, but not necessarily by flavor impact. And it can be uh, light, fruity, and small levels. You can get light fruitiness from it. But in high levels, it could be very solvent and smell of like nail polish remover um, and be very much a turnoff. So I would imagine all of these esters are you've ever feel like you had a beer with too much acetyl acetate? Yes. Yes. Okay. Done. 100%. <laughs> like I was looking at them. I was like, I can see the rest of these. I was like, I don't know if I've ever had a beer with too much acetyl acetate, but yeah, well, I guess the, um, if we're talking about like a Hefeweizen, then no. But sure. when we're talking about a beer that should not have high levels of isoamyl acetate in it. True, 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 true. <laughs> and that's the other thing is like each of these, 
they have are yeah. like in small doses can add complexity or you know or enhance and then if there's too much of them that's when it crosses over into a fault yeah because like we said typically if you don't have healthy yeast or if your fermentation temperature is too high you can end up with these esters that you might not you might not want in there and that can be indicative that something went wrong with your fermentation mm -hmm. um like nail polish removers not appetizing right right and ethyl acetate is produced like rachel said by most brewers yeast so the higher your fermentation temperature and the higher your alcohol content the more ethyl acetate you will have which is why like a, a beer like a barley wine or a scotch ale that's going to be higher in abv is going to have higher levels of ethyl acetate in it and that's going to add to the complexity of the beer um, but if you have it can also be indicative of like wild yeast. You've got an infection somewhere. If you weren't intending it to be, uh, you know, True. high ABV, or you let's say you controlled your fermentation temperature, and you're getting like a fault level of ethyl acetate, then you might have an infection somewhere. Mm -hmm. Very true. It's a good point. Um, and then we have ethyl butyrate, which comes from an alcohol combining with ethyl. Um, I'm sorry, not ethyl uh, butyric acid. Right. And butyric acid is, to me, straight up baby vomit, the way it smells. Um, but ethyl butyrate can be very nice, very tropical fruit. Pineapple can be fruit bubblegum forward. Um, finding big IPAs or a lot of Brett IPAs, I feel like, can produce a lot of butyric acid in a nice way, depending on the Brett string, of right. course. Um, I can't remember the exact strain that would do that. Do you? Um, ethyl butyrate is going to be, I think that's um, whichever one Lambicus is. Okay. Like the Clausini. I need to look, read, read, one, look those um, up. It's the one that would have more ethyl butyrate, whereas the other one um, is going to have more like 4EP and more of those like Wyacol, which we'll talk about in a second. Which probably should do an episode on Brett. Have we? I think, yeah, we have. Oh, it's been so long. It's been so right. long. Been um, episode. So with ethyl butyrate, one of the things that I get from it is uh, like very ripe strawberries. But the other thing I get is um, the, in Kraft macaroni and cheese, the cheese packet smells like ethyl butyrate. Interesting. I've never yes. had that. So I wouldn't know. Oh, I don't like mac and cheese. Right. That's so, why are we friends? <laughs> <laughs> I don't like blue cheese. I don't like mac and cheese. Right. Yes. And ethyl butyrate is one of, like we mentioned, some hops can have, or there can be hop derived esters and ethyl butyrate is one of those that can be derived from hops. And uh, so this is, ethyl butyrate is also associated with like noble type hop varieties. And I've remember last year at GABF judging, I think I was judging Czech Pilsners. And one of the things that we noted was so like a lot of them had really high ethyl butyrate levels, which wasn't necessarily a fault. It was more, hey, we Brewers Association, when you redo these guidelines, you might want to consider saying that ethyl butyrate is commonly found in those. And we've talked about this before with our um, type one and type two 
lager yeast, but ethyl butyrate can be produced by both ale and lager um, and is yeast. And it's usually going to happen during the second half of fermentation. Um, but with the two types of lager yeast, type one produces ethyl butyrate. So that's going to be Budweiser and Heineken, which we were just talking in our style deep dive about like how like banana Heineken mm -hmm. is. Um, now I'll have to see if I have some left and revisit it and see if it's maybe more ethyl butyrate. Now uh, that you're thinking but, about it. <laughs> yeah, the type one lager yeast produces ethyl butyrate. That's the, the lager yeast is known as the prima donna yeast. And then type two lager yeast does not produce ethyl butyrate. So that's like Beck's, Peroni, um, 65% of the world's lager volume is type two lager yeast. Mm -hmm. But those, if you, that's why it's possible to have a, if you've got a lager that's using a type one lager yeast, you're going to get ethyl butyrate production in that. And it's not necessarily a fault or yeah. it isn't a fault because it produces, the yeast naturally produces that. Makes sense. Uh, ethyl hexanoate is one of my favorites because I really like anise and fennel and licorice. Yeah, see, no. And, yeah, and that is um, that is straight ethyl hexanoate. And like some beers, like Irish Red Ale's Newcastle has really high levels of ethyl hexanoate. Um, if you have a lot, that's going to be indicative of poor yeast handling. So ethyl hexanoate will be released when yeast cells get older or sicker. And higher fermentation temperatures can also cause high levels of ethyl hexanoate. Uh, but both ale and lager yeast can produce those, which again, going back to what Rachel was saying about, you know, those fermentation parameters, if you have a lager yeast, you've generally got health, I shouldn't say generally have healthier yeast, but you generally need more mm -hmm. lager yeast is at lower temperatures. So you're, you don't have that higher temperature that's creating those esters. So that's why you can have a lager that can produce these, but you might not pick it up. It might not be at a threshold level for you. Then I guess last one we have is isoamyl acetate. Mm -hmm. is B-A-N-A-N-A-S. <laughs> yes. And so that's going to be artificial banana. Um, it's present in all beers, but it's going to vary depending on the level um, or of the concentration. So like we mentioned, it's the signature flavor of Hefeweizen. And I remember, Rachel, we both had this on uh, as part of our answer, I think, about Brett in one oh, of yeah. our exams we took that it's that banana flavor is really unstable in acid. So it's going to be very unlikely to be found in sour beers, first of all, but Brett is very good at breaking down isoamyl acetate into individual components. So you won't get Brett and isoamyl acetate in a beer together. Ever. Ever. Most likely. Right. And I guess I would say unless somebody adds an artificial banana flavor. Which wouldn't it, really be isoamyl acetate. Right. Yeah. Exactly. It's just, you could go to the store, you could actually get what flavor right or banana flavoring extract I think or something so. yeah and if you want to try acetyl acetate with your own di dyi spike that might be a good way to do it but yeah yeah you can do that for sure or you could just go buy a wheat beer a right German wheat beer right <laughs> and um back to the our type one and type two lager yeast i do have this note in here 
that type one lager yeast, so that Budweiser and Heineken have about four milligrams a liter of isoamyl acetate. The threshold's about two milligrams per liter. So that's, I, I should have read ahead in my own notes to note that I, I am tasting isoamyl acetate in Heineken, but I am going to revisit it to see if I can also get that ethyl butyrate. And this is especially when Rachel was talking about your uh, hydrostatic pressure, this is especially important for isoamyl acetate because the depth of your fermenter is going to be important to how much is going to be present. Mm -hmm. And so your CO2 dissolves quicker in the deeper fermenter. So there's going to be less isoamyl acetate. So if you're looking for something very isoamyl acetate forward, maybe an open fermenter. And like you said, like uh, free range has for their saisons where you're mm -hmm. going to have more of that ester production um, and you might have a little bit harder time getting the kind of banana flavor you're looking for if you're using like a big cylinder conical vessel to ferment like your Hefeweizen or something. Yeah. And for me, as the beer warms up, that isoamyl acetate fades mm -hmm. so quickly. Like it can be hard to, I guess I'm getting a little acclimated to it at the same time, but it it just, it can be uh, in my sensory evaluation <laughs> when I've been training. <laughs> Uh, right. That is what I've noticed. All right, let's jump yes. ship to phenols. Um, okay. Yeah. So phenols are going to, this is also detoxification for the yeast. This is, phenols are produced to break down toxic compounds into something less toxic. Um, most phenols are the result of ferulic acid being broken down into 4VG. So it's, I said that in a weird way, the most common phenol you're going to encounter likely is going to be ferulic acid broken down into four vinyl guaiacol, which is that clove flavor in Hefeweizens, which is one of the reasons why I really, really like teaching people about esters and phenols, because most people, even if like the most novice beer drinker has had a Hefeweizen. Yeah. And so it's the easiest way to be like that banana flavor, ester, the clove flavor, phenol. Those yep. are the difference. Yep. Exactly. Um, so they also come from, you know, they can come from other places. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess real quick to touch base on the ferulic acid, wheat specifically, barley contains fer ferulic acid, but wheat contains a lot of ferulic acid. Mm -hmm. So when you're using, when you're making a wheat beer, like a German wheat beer, that is t typically 50, probably 70% wheat, um, you are giving the wart, the what it needs for the yeast, giving the yeast what it needs to produce all that uh, 4VG. So again, if you are, you know, creating a recipe, it's important to, you know, are you wanting to get this character 4VG? If you do, you should probably, you know, put some wheat into your recipe, like not make right. a, you know, just 100% pale recipe you know this is important for your ingredients and a lot of people know to put wheat into their german wheat beer because they just do a little google research of like what goes into wheat beer right so but wheat. this is the, this is the science behind it yeah <laughs> wheat. right and that's also like in our mashing episode when we've talked about doing an acid rest if you want to increase the amount of ferulic acid that's later going to be available to create those four vg flavors then you can do an acid rest to make sure that you're getting more of that if you don't want that then don't do an acid rest and sure. you're, you'll still get some of those that ferulic acid 
Um, and but then you you will also need to pair that with your like POF positive, so phenolic off flavor positive yeast is going to be what's going to give you the True. phenolic flavors. That's and right. one thing I think is really interesting with phenols, and I learned this from the escarpment labs episode or episode <laughs> webinar on yeast flavor compounds. This is one of the like all-star escarpment labs ones that I just love so much. I've watched it so many times, but the level of phenols in your final beer is the same. What's different, what's making something seem more phenolic or less phenolic is the overall balance of flavor. So you, you might have like that high perception of 4VG that doesn't necessarily mean that that level is different, different. is that mm -hmm. everything else is balanced in such a way that it makes it uh, like the more, star. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. Yeah. And that's why I keep meaning to do this. And I don't know if you've done this before or not, Rachel, but, you know, with different Hefeweizens, and we've talked about this a lot, that Hefeweizen is a good conversation to have with the brewer because there's so many different decisions that go into, do you want it more banana? Do you want it more clove? Yeah, what are your flavors exactly. you looking for? And I know there's some like, um, I think it's by, by Hinstefaner that... It's doesn't not very acyl. Yeah, it doesn't have very much banana. Does it? Yeah, it doesn't. Um, it is very. I've, it's heavier on clove. I've grabbed that before, for blind style discriminations for our team, and then just grabbing a wheat beer to go with mm -hmm. it, American wheat beer, and it is kind of hard for them because yeah. it, they're looking for that isoamylacetate. We're right. looking for the banana, right? And right. it's not there. And then I think the next time I grabbed Schneider Weiss, and it was a lot better. Right, right. So I like to do like a blind panel on the different Hefeweizens just to be able to learn that yeah. because something like that can really trip you up if you've got a Hefeweizen and like you said, you're looking for banana and clove and you don't get banana, but you get clove. It's like, oh, maybe this is, this is a like saison. A yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. you are there to take a test, right? So part of taking a test is learning test taking skills and like, right. you're like, this is what they would test me on, of course. So right, exactly. Yes. Yeah. And like we were saying with the, your fermentation temperature being increased is going to give you more esters, which means you're going to have less perceived phenols. Whereas if you have a lower fermentation uh, temperature, you'll have less esters, which means that you'll have more perceivable mm -hmm. phenols. So like we've talked about before, this is all like, everything just goes hand in hand. Mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of hard to talk about beer and brewing in a vacuum. Oh yeah, no. that's you know. There's you find esters yourself being like, wait, <laughs> right? Yeah. Esters and phenols definitely pull all of that in. Where you like, you have to be thinking about, okay, wait, here are all, here are all the components that go into this. How yeah. these interact with the finished beer, and they're yeast derived, but they are affected by everything that you do. Correct. So, for example, phenols don't. Well, I just said that, right? They don't always come from yeast. They do come from other things. Um, up until now, we've been talking about yeast derived, right. derived phenols, but they can come from your water. Um, like chlorine might be added into your brewing water, or to, I mean, it's added into most city water, right? So, mm -hmm. depending where your water's from, you need to filter that chlorine out. Um, there are polyphenols that naturally live in malt and hops, and those will, if your water has chlorine, those will affect with the water or react with the water and create chlorophenols, which 
can be very off-putting, can make your, your beer smell like antiseptic or I get a little pool like personally, but, um, Mm -hmm. I think antiseptic is most what people, other people get. Uh, you could also be using like a chlorine based cleaner or sanitizer in your brewery. Um, it's kind of weird to me. I don't know why you would do that, but (laughs) breweries do do that. And you know, if you are for some reason doing that on your fermentation vessels, you need, or even your brewing equipment, you need to make sure you're rinsing all of that off as to the best of your ability. Mm -hmm. I again, don't know why you would do that, but, um, also smoked malt will contain phenols. Um, again, this is coming from your ingredients. So phenols, uh, I always say this word wrong, Jen, and you know why it's because, can you say it for me? The glucyl, glucyl, glycol. Yeah. And it's because of that freaking part on a pig. There's a, on a, a yes. yes, yes. I gotta look it up. <laughs> There's a so if you take like a, a diagram of pig of like the type of meat, it's, it's yeah. Like, what is it called? You know what it's called? It's like a master cicerone thing, like glua, child, glucosidol. Like they say it like an Italian way. Oh yes. Um, I so one I can't say either of the words, but two they just look like the same word to me. So these are the same words to me. Yeah. Pork cheeks. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. I'm not crazy. Guiancal is Italian for cheek. So that's pork cheek. And guayacal is not that. Guiancal. Say, say the first one again. <laughs> guiancal. Guiancal. And, and guayacal. Guayacal. This guiancal tastes like guayacal. <laughs> <laughs> it might. Do you smoke it? It might. Each one. <laughs> it might. I still can't say it, so but that's okay. Guayacol. So what were we talking about? Uh, Guayacol. <laughs> the right. smoky character. <laughs> Guayacol. Guayacol. Rock malt. Uh, rock beer. Smoked malt will add phenols of guayacol. Right. Yes. And that, that can also um, happen by bacteria during fermentation. Um, sometimes like Brett, especially depending on the, if you're using like a very phenolic Brett, uh, you'll get some of that guayacol, like almost smoky, like burnt rubber sort of flavor. And you can also get guayacol from barrel aging, which makes sense because most barrels have been, yeah, have been charred to some extent. Um, so you can pick up some guayacol from that as well. And also from a barrel, you can get vanillin, which is another type of phenol. Mm -hmm. um that is like the vanilla character that you might find that can also happen which i I know we haven't got to but that can also happen from a breakdown of um 4v 4eg 4vg 4eg 4vg got it this final answer yes Uh, so if you have a wheat beer that you know this actually happened to me with a spike, Jen. So, like, um, Jen and I did a uh, virtual Aroxa off flavor course, like, fucking year and a half ago. But I still have some spikes, so I have been kind of using them, knowing that they're old, but like tasting them. And I did a Gokyle, a that yep. one. And um, no, that's not what I did. I did four VG, and it tasted like vanilla. Yep. 
I've done that same thing before. It was old. And I, I felt bad because, oh my God, I felt so bad because I freaking gave it to the girls with like three options. And one of the options in my mind that was supposed to be a throwaway was vanilla. <laughs> so of course they guessed vanilla because it right. tasted like fucking vanilla and it was vanilla. I was like, <laughs> I was like, let me taste that. And I was like, oh, this is old. It's for VG, but you're, now it's vanilla. <laughs> so, yes. Anyways, those are uh, from ingredient wise. Those are the phenols that you can get. You can also get them from chemical taints. I know we mentioned chlorine and, you know, and your sanitizers earlier. Um, bromine can be introduced by packaging materials. This is like something I didn't experience until we had our master cicerone tests are the first one mm, together bromophenol because we had it on there yeah and it, to me i mean re- when you say reminds me of old tv sets like or a smell of electrical short that kind of makes sense now but at the time it smelled like paint like just straight paint. yeah i can see that wet paint and that's all i wrote i wrote paint 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 literally like three times i didn't know what else to say it's like all i could smell right so we're talking about phenols from we talked about yeast. We talked about 4-VG. Um, there can be 4-ethylphenol. That can be a similar subset of Belgian beers. I think we ta- hit on that real quick. Can you kind of describe? That would be very Band-Aid-y almost. Yeah. 4-EP is a it's- flavor that is brewer's yeast does not produce it. So if you have 4-EP, that Band-Aid, um, Barnardy, that Brett flavor. Yeah, this is a wild Brett yeast. You have an infection. Yes, um, because Britannomyces and some strains of um, lactic acid can produce this for EP. So if again, if you're making like a farmhouse ale or something that's a mixed firm, you're doing that in part for that. The for EP is kind of like a hallmark of Britannomyces. That's that Mm -hmm. funky flavor that you're you want to have present in your bread beer probably but if you didn't put bread in your beer and you get 4ep you have an infection somewhere and i i know i've given people that feedback on their score sheet before where it's like this is not a bad beer this is not the beer that you intended you need to check your like cleaning and hygiene and everything around this because you have an infection that doesn't mean that it's bad uh, yeah, it exactly. Just means, it just means that you have an infection and it has this unintended flavor. So yeah, that's for ethyl phenol. And yeah, like I have in my notes, it can quickly become offensive. I do not like 4EP. Like when yeah. it comes to <laughs> Brett beers, I prefer like the very tropical flavors yes. and I can do a little bit of 4EP. Um, but when I've done Brett beers, I have specifically chosen yeast strains that don't they have very yeah. low for ep just because i i do not like it especially when it gets really high it's just like that exactly rubber yeah and it's that difference between slight hay slight farm mm-hmm. which is like band-aid to me is, right or that or burnt rubber yes and there's a there's a fine line it's gonna be easy to cross right and do you know what else i just thought of that now i need to check this out so for a long time before I knew what like what Britannomyces was and what that flavor was, I would say that it tasted like Minute Maid lemonade, like from a soda fountain. Mm. 
Mm. And I'm gonna have to look into that. Like, I wonder... you, like the soda fountain's like full of bacteria. <laughs> oh, that's true. <laughs> You're right. Like poor form bacteria. When, yeah. When do they clean those soda lines? Is it every two weeks? Um, oh, I don't know. That's a really good. I point. don't even know the standard oh. for that shit. I'll have to look that up because I, I would, I always would smell it and be like, this smells like lemon minute made lemonade specifically. I s- fucking saw the grossest TikTok video the other day. Okay. And it was this lady. It was this lady. First of all, it was that guy, Jordan react that we both follow that. I really like, mm. like the like, mirror guy. Yeah. God, come his closer, voice. Guy. His voice. <laughs> come, you know, he's like, says something here, come closer. Right. Like, I'm closer. Yeah. Closer. <laughs> his voice is so soothing. But anyway, so like this girl had her video and she's like, I filled up this jug of water from the Arby's two days ago. And now it's got all these black dots in it. And he's like, let me tell you why. Come closer. And you're like, tell me why, Jordan. Yeah. And he's like, because they don't fucking clean that shit. And there's chloroform bacteria living in there. And after a couple of days sitting out, yeah, it starts to present your, present itself. And I was like, I, that's it. That is it. I am never drinking <laughs> out of a fucking fountain ever again. I don't care where it is. Nope. That was enough for me to see all that. Oh, nope. Yeah. So yeah, maybe that's what was in your minute. Maybe so. I'll look it up. I'll have to look that up. I think that's a very good <laughs> connection to make. Um, yeah. And like sometimes with the, uh, with 4EP, like that can also be sometimes a little smoky. I like, I like gorgonzola cheese and I can pick that up in gorgonzola cheese as well. Um, of kind of that, like that phenolic barnyardy flavor. Um, that's going to be the clove. It can be light vanilla. Um, apparently in wine, people say that it smells like carnations. And I actually, when I read this, I remember buying carnations to see if I could smell the 4VG on them. Um, I buy flowers, not for the reason most people buy flowers, because <laughs> I also like I just had flowers on my desk that I was letting die um, specifically <laughs> so I could like I could smell them as they started to die to be like, OK, like this is fresh red rose. This is like wilted red rose and then it just got to where i was like this is these fucking stink i gotta get rid of these um so i rarely buy flowers just to look at them i'm always like hmm, this does smell like citrus or something uh but yes carnations is another uh descriptor for 4vg um and we we've talked about this already but th- this is going to be formed when the yeast breaks down the ferulic acid and this uh like we said you can do the 4vg you can do an acid rest to get more ferulic acid uh but if you're using something like a pof positive yeast strain then you can just make your wort like normal and you'll probably have high enough levels of ferulic acid from that yeast strain that you're using that's going to break that down um, into the 4VG. You mean you can skip the ferulic acid rest? Right, yeah, right. Gotcha. Unless you like, if you want a very high clove flavor in your mm-hmm. hepatobison, then you could do both. Yeah. Yeah, and what else? What other phenols do we have? Did we talk about... I think the, we talked about glocalcol, but I didn't say it right, did I? <laughs> we know, we know. I was so mean. confident myself. <laughs> <laughs> what is the difference between... For ethyl glocalcol and glocalcol. So for ethyl glycol is going to be guayacol. clove, 
smoky ash-like. Bertanomyces has a gene that encodes for the enzyme vinyl phenol reductase, so that allows Brett strains to convert 4-VG, so the clove flavor, into 4-EG, which is going to be more of a medicinal flavor. I think they're going to be very, very similar, um, but guayacol is just going to be smoke flavor. So Thank I think you. they're they're going to be similar, but think about smoky a versus of wild yeast. Okay. Yes. Yes. And it, at How least they come. from my understanding, and this may this may not be correct, but I think that 4EG is another one of those that brewer's yeast isn't necessarily going to do. You'll like as a Britannomyces specific yes. thing because they have this enzyme or they have this gene that allows them to break that down. And 4EG is a major byproduct of Brett Bruxellensis. That was the one I was trying to think about earlier. That's that's the one that's like really has that like super horse, like mm -hmm. horse blanket uh, kind of flavor to it. So if you don't like that, like me, don't use Brett Brux. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like that either. I like the tropical fruity cherry pie. Right. Pineapple ones. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I feel like that is a really good overhaul of esters and, and phenols, you know? Yeah. And I remember um, like one of my earliest blog posts was about the difference between esters and phenols because I, that's like something you, you read about again, like you get like this theoretical knowledge of like, oh, Belgian beers are high in esters and phenols. Lager shouldn't be. And yeah. I remember just making a post about if it's like spicy or medicinal or plastic, that's a phenol. If yeah. it's fruity, that's an ester. I mean, like, okay, now I understand what the differences are between the two of them. Yeah. Because yeah, there was like we always it. say, like we we all learn this knowledge at some point. And that was one of the times that I was like, okay, I know that these both come from fermentation, but I don't know what the difference is or how I would know when it's one versus the other. Mm -hmm. I think that wraps up our phenol and ester episode. Yes. Thank you everyone for listening. You can find us at false bottom girls on Instagram and Facebook. You can email us falsebottomgirls at gmail.com. You can also visit our website, falsebottomgirls.com. Let us know what it looks like because neither one of us ever got to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We do need to work on that. There's a lot of things we need to do. Right. We don't have time. We don't have resources. So, yeah, bear, we're, we're, we're working on it. We're working on it. You know, we're all just here doing the best we can. This has been False Bottom Girls, and we make the brewing world go round.